Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the third of the seven specific notes to the seven churches of Asia Minor mentioned in the book of Revelation. Pergamum was just up the coast from Smyrna, about a 90-minute drive today, though things were a lot slower in the first century. As before, Jesus introduces himself with a description of himself taken from chapter 1. Here he calls himself him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That sharp two-edged sword was protruding from his mouth, a poignant graphic image that reminds us that Jesus' word is powerful, able to divide truth from error, and generally with a word able to defend or destroy anything he chooses. It's an ominous image for those Christians dwelling in Pergamum. Jesus begins, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was an incredibly wealthy, an incredibly powerful city. It had an enormous altar believed to have been for either the Greek god Zeus or goddess Athena. In addition to numerous other temples and sanctuaries to various deities, they even were the first city to build a temple to Caesar Augustus. And within a couple decades of the book of Revelation being written, they had constructed a temple to Emperor Trajan. It was a major center for emperor worship. What we said last week about Ephesus could probably be said about Pergamum with even more emphasis. This was a place where worshiping Caesar was a high expectation of the citizens as a matter of civic pride. As a political religious center of ancient Rome, it may well have been a truly oppressive environment for followers of Christ. The throne of Satan, indeed. But Jesus commends these Christians because they have held fast to him, and not renounce their faith despite obviously high pressure to do so, even when a certain Antipas was killed in their city. We know precious little about Antipas. There is a tradition that he was a pastor in Pergamum, killed during the reign of Nero, but we simply don't know if there's any stock in this tradition. What we do know is that he was a faithful witness, which, as we've seen, meant that he was publicly willing to identify Jesus as his only Lord, the one to whom all must one day bow. It apparently cost him his life. Not all is positive, though. Jesus has some things against them, and we're quickly reminded of the sword of his word. There are some so-called Christians in Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam, We discussed this a bit when we spoke of Ephesus, but let's dig in a bit more here. Balaam was an ancient prophet 
discussed in the book of Numbers. He was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to pronounce a curse on Israel so that he could defeat them in battle. The Israelites were camped at the outskirts of Moab's territory and seemed to be a present danger to the Moabite king. But Balaam was unable to pronounce a curse on Israel. God, the real God, Yahweh, made Balaam bless Israel instead. But while the Israelites were camped in that area, they fraternized with the pagan Moabites and committed sexual immorality and worshipped the Canaanite deity Baal. We learn later that it was Balaam's advice to lure them into idolatry through sex. And so what Balaam couldn't do with a hex, the Israelites did to themselves. The Israelites cursed themselves with the compromise of unbelief. Jesus says in the same way some of the Christians in Pergamum have walked away from pure devotion to Jesus by engaging in idolatry. That's the Nicolaitans, a group that we said before likely said it was okay, even good, to offer a little incense to Caesar, give a little emperor worship on the side, speak the magic words Caesar is Lord under one's breath in order to gain acceptance in society. Jesus' message to those Christians is blunt. If they don't turn away from their compromise, he will declare war against them and utterly destroy them. It's a potent reminder that the Christian message has never been entirely acceptable to polite society. The gospel will always be offensive. We, as Christians, will never fully be at home in any nation, in any political party, with any worldly ideology, in any cultural wind of change. And so we always will face temptations to compromise our faith in Jesus for political or social expediency. But we must hold fast to the truth and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But to those who do conquer the threat of apostasy, the pull to deny their Lord, Jesus promises two gifts. The first is the hidden manna, which is rich with symbolism. Manna was the substance God provided the Israelites to eat while they traversed the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan. It was the food, the divine provision that was in their bellies when they bowed down to worship Baal. It was the first bread from heaven, and some of those Israelites stopped eating it that very day because of their sin. But a better bread from heaven has come down, Jesus, and we will dine with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb when he is put to death, death, and every knee in the universe has been made to bow. And a white stone? What of that? Greg Beale in his commentary on Revelation helpfully notes that White stones were used in the ancient world in a couple unique contexts. They were a vote of acquittal, as opposed to black stones that reflected a vote of guilty. And they were also sometimes used for admission, sort of like a ticket into a special gathering. It's possible the white stones here carry both meanings. Even if the Christians are guilty of failing to worship Caesar, even should they go to jail or to be executed, they'll be declared innocent in the court of the Christ, and they'll have a reservation at that great banquet. That stone will have a new name. It's not their name, it is Christ's name. Christ's exalted name is the one who reigns above all that will be marked on their stones, a secret only proper for Jesus and his people to know. What an encouragement 
to persevere through trial and persecution. Until next time.